As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Yeah, let's get right to it. We have to do that with the important economic data coming up as well. And we're thrilled to bring you from our studios in New York on radio and television worldwide. Matthew Lozetti, chief U.S. economist at Deutsche Bank. Matt, thank you so much for joining us in studio with this data coming out as is, is well. You nailed the when of it. You absolutely nailed not only the vector of the call, and this on GDP and recession, and not NBER recession, but the idea of a slowdown. But you nailed where everybody got wrong, the immediacy of recession, and you said no. Do you stick with that now? When is the win of any kind of slowdown that we see? Yeah, I think the recent data we've seen over the past several months, uh, if anything, I, I think gives you greater confidence in that kind of timeline. Uh, certainly, the economy has momentum now. Uh, what we've seen from the jobs reports or retail sales or some of the survey data bottoming and, and picking back up all tells you, I think, that Q1 growth should be solid. Uh, certainly above trend, we think. I think that the the ongoing narrative that we hear from the Fed about this kind of gradual slowdown in growth over the coming quarters doesn't really seem to fit with the data that we have. I think that that narrative likely has to change. But at the same time, what we've seen from an inflation perspective is a lot less disinflation than we thought late last year. We see core inflation picking back up over the coming months. We think that leads the Fed to be more aggressive. We have a 5.6% terminal rate, which I think then builds into the hard landing risks later. Well, let's talk about the hard landing risks. Where do you have the downturn on the calendar? Difficult to do, but just to set up the conversation, where no, do you have no, it? No doubt just difficult to do. We, we currently have it in Q4. We've gone Q3, Q4. It's been, always been a second half story for us. I, I think it's a, a few things. One, you know, we do expect the Fed to be more aggressive. The market has repriced the terminal rate a lot, but I think not enough yet. I think we will probably see the market repriced it higher on upcoming inflation data. And then you have a number of things in the second half of the year. Households lose their excess savings. I, I think that leads to household fragility. You obviously have a debt ceiling, which could lead to financial condition tightening uh, and weaker uh, government spending. So there's a lot of risks as we look out into Q3. You're at 560 now, right? We are. Terminal rate. Do you think there's upside risk to that view? Look, with the data as it is today, I do think that there's upside risks to that view. If you look at the labor market, and I think it's really important, it's not just the latest data points, because we should take the January data with some grain of salt, given weather, seasonal adjustment factors. We had meaningful upward revisions to household income in, in the Q4 of last year. You've had inflation data, which was revised up meaningfully in, in Q4. So I think as you look at the Fed, I don't think that they will really have any evidence of disinflation by the, by the May meeting. They only, may, may only have a month or two by the July meeting. And really, it's a question of, you know, can they tighten financial conditions enough? I think we heard concerns about that in the minutes yesterday. 
I want to dig into that a little bit more. Upside surprise to 5.6%. Is that because long and variable lags isn't a thing? And it like we're already seeing basically the effect of the tightness and that it just isn't tight enough at a 5% or a 5.5%? Or is this that this is a less interest rate sensitive economy that needs to have a much bigger shock? Yeah, I think there's two lags that we probably want to talk about. There's uh, what the Fed does and what happens with monetary policy to financial conditions. I think that lag has been very quick and tight. We saw it reflected in mortgage rates. Financial conditions actually tightened very quickly. And then there's the lag of that financial condition tightening onto the economy. I think that's where, you know, we are probably seeing an economy that's more resilient. You have the excess savings. We still think it's $1 trillion. You've had state and local governments that were sending out checks. So there's been this latent stimulus in the system. At the same time, you have a labor market that's undersupplied, which I think is making it very resilient to the tightening so far. So I think those two lags have, have different lag structures, but the one where it hits the economy, that's taking longer than I think what we've seen in the past. Is there a sense that there is a level at which the economy would break or that could really put a major halt on an economic trajectory that still seems to have momentum? Look, I, I'll be quite honest. I think we don't know what level that is. And I think that's in part the the idea that there's upside risk to, to the terminal rate. You know, going back a year ago, uh, if you would have said that we'd be, have a 5% handle on, on the Fed funds rate and we'd be contemplating whether or not the economy would be in a recession, I think that'd be almost preposterous conversation to be having. Uh, as we continue to price higher financial conditions, you know, they're tight. They've tightened. But I don't think they're tight enough to achieve the Fed's dual mandate objectives. And so I think we have to be open-minded and humble about where, where that terminal rate is actually going to be. I want to take the Heritage Deutsche Bank, and this goes back to 13 years now, to a raging debate at the time off of Dooley, Garber, and Folkert's Landau, David leading all of your research effort. And there was a titanic debate about China savings and China flow. Paul McCauley was involved in this and Brad Setzer and, and others. I want to bring that to the domestic right now. Not the unknown with China, but what's the unknown for Matt Lazzetti in the American economic experiment right now? What's the mystery out there for you three, four, five years out? So I think three, four, five years out, uh, there's this really interesting conversation about what the neutral Fed funds rate is likely to be. It does play into a little bit about the, the global savings story. And I think it's really about what are we seeing today that is simply reflecting unique circumstances around the pandemic? Or what is it something that is more structural? I think some things that we know that might be more structural, I think inflation is going to be structurally higher going forward. You know, we have all these shifts going on, demographic forces, deglobalization, you have uh, climate change policy, all these things I think are at the margin at least are going to be inflationary. I think you also have a a world where maybe fiscal policy in the U.S. has not structurally changed in in an easier direction. But I think globally, we might see that shifting in a, in a more easier direction. And I think that does lift the neutral rate for, for the Fed as we so look ahead. He's Rogoffian. You see that coming from Europe, China? Where do you see that coming from? So I think we have, uh, in Europe, we have defense spending, you have climate change policy. In China, you likely have a shift away from domestic savings uh, in their economy over time. In the U.S., it's a more open question. You know, we have a debt ceiling debate that, that's going to be happening in the second half of this year. Could this lead to fiscal retrenchment? It seems pretty likely he that it does. He put that sentence in there on China savings just to keep his job. Folkert's Landau's watching. Are you getting questions on that debt ceiling <clears throat> debate yet? Or are people avoiding it? Is it you trying to talk to clients about it or clients trying to talk to you? It's clients trying to talk to us at the moment. I, I would say that the past few, it was more, uh, we have to come up against it. You have to see it reflected in the bill market, and then everybody starts to focus on it. I think this time around, there's been a lot more focus early on. Maybe it's you know what was going on with the, the speaker leadership votes. Um, it's very clear that I think from both sides that they're, they're, they're kind of uh, entrenched in, in their views at this point, and that it will be 
uh, an issue. And so I think that there has been greater focus on it this time around. You think for it not to be an issue, it needs to become an issue. And what I mean by that, they need to push it far enough that something happens in markets for them to back away. Is Absolutely. that where you see this going? Yeah, I, I don't see any way that either side should back down from their view unless it becomes an, an issue where financial conditions begin to tighten. The problem we've all got is it's an issue for like somewhere else further out in the calendar, Lisa, like so in the summer, it's deep a, into the summer. It's such a frustrating discussion to have. Massively. I mean, there is a, one, a group of economists over at Jefferies put out this note basically saying some of the sell-off that you've seen in bills with yields rising above 5% in the short end could be tied to some of this debt ceiling debate. Mohamed Alarian came out and he basically was like, no, it's not. It's all the Fed. <laughs> but, you know, this is the issue. It's sort of like, how do you game that out? Because even the reaction function in markets, what is it? Is it to go into short-term debt because it's safe? I mean, the irony around how the market would even respond when you it does treasuries. become an issue. That seems to be the, the play it's every just, single time. We'll see if it's different this time. Anyway, core PCE, a little bit hotter for the fourth quarter, Tom. That's another read of that, 4.3%. Oh. Jobless claims expected to climb higher. They did not. They declined to 192 from a revised 195. What do you make of that? GDP price index up as well. And just to the amateur take I take is to add up GDP annualized plus the GDP price index. And I got nominal GDP of 6.6% if my Matt Lazzetti math is correct. And I'm sorry, John, that's, a, that's, that's what keeps you going when you've got nominal GDP at that level. Matt, we've got to come to you on that. Yeah. Matt Lazzetti from Deutsche Bank alongside us. Can we just start with that number? 192,000. Your thoughts on it? I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable that the Fed has tightened as much as they have, and you don't see a labor market that is really um, certainly not shedding labor. It's not coming into better balance as the Fed had had hoped for. Um, I think the revisions to the recent data you've had, plus the latest data, show really no weakening at all. I, I would highlight the core PCE number there as well. Uh, upward revisions. I think it likely reflects the the seasonal adjustment that we saw in the CPI now getting reflected in, in the core PCE data as well. You get that if plus a 0.5 reading tomorrow. Uh, I think what you know. The Fed minutes, the, the sentence that I focused on the most was, you know, there's concern if they don't tighten sufficiently that progress on inflation could halt. I think that with the revisions to the data, with the incoming data that we're seeing, there has to be a question about whether or not they are tightened sufficiently and whether or not what the market is pricing right now is tightening sufficiently. After payrolls, I spoke to a lot of people that said there was more noise than signal in the January data. Based on the data we've had in the last couple of weeks, do you think there was more signal than noise? Look, I don't think we're going to print 500,000 jobs per month on average. Of course. Uh, so there, there's, there's no doubt. Make a headline out of that. A lot, a lot of, there's no doubt a lot of noise there. <laughs> but when you look at the broad labor market data, if you look at the JOLTS data, you know, a few days before that job openings picking up, initial jobless claims, everything is telling you a labor market that has momentum uh, and that is tight. I look at just the core equation. Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX. Can we guesstimate any of those factors given we're coming out of a pandemic with a Biden stimulus? I am so fortunate I'm not doing what Peter Hooper's told you to do, which is actually try to guesstimate this. What's your confidence in guesstimating forward? Look, it's, it's, it's always difficult, I think. It's, it's even more difficult in the current environment. As I, as I look at those Q4 GDP numbers. The downgraded consumption is meaningful. We were actually close to zero growth in private domestic demand already, meaning if you were to look at housing, consumption, and CapEx. And so it does look like from those numbers, you had even probably a sharper slowdown in domestic demand growth in Q4. Uh, but I think the data that we've had since then is suggestive that that was a temporary blip. It was around the period where we think financial conditions were hitting the economy probably most significantly. And if the Fed does not continue to engineer conditions that are, are tight enough, uh, you have an economy that I think is is likely to pick back up and a labor market that is unlikely to loosen. Does that mean that there's another 50 basis point on the table? I, I think 
you know, it's not the optimal choice from their perspective. Uh, if they ratchet up to 50 basis points, we get back into this process of how do you get back down from 50 to 25? And if you only want to go one or two, uh, it's going to be very difficult to do that by the May or June meetings. I think for the March meeting, if they need to deliver a, a hawkish surprise, you always kind of have that free card of the dot plot. The dot plot is able to signal their intentions. They could show a Fed funds terminal rate that's higher than what the market has priced in, holding it for longer. And the messaging, I think, is really important here. If they were simply to talk down financial conditions, as, as the minutes did a little bit, wait, wait, I think that that I, would have an impact. This is critical. This is original. Since when does a central bank, quote unquote, talk down financial conditions? I actually looked at that <laughs> the last, in the minutes. Literally for the past decade. <laughs> just, well, before they were talking them up. Yeah. Now okay. they're talking okay. them down. Right. Meltzer Same didn't thing. talk like, about it. On. Anna Schwartz didn't talk about it. Uh, the Georgia School didn't talk about it. UCLA didn't talk about it. How do they, quote unquote, talk down financial conditions? Look, I think we're in a, in a obviously the past decade, decade and a half is a new period of communications from central banks. It is guiding towards their expectations of what they want to do in order to bring about financial conditions that will achieve their objectives. And so they always should be asking the question, you know, is the market interpreting our signals as we want them to be interpreting them? And are we achieving financial conditions that will achieve our It's like our Dr. Phil, yeah, except but, it's but Dr. Matt. But, but, but the interesting <clears throat> thing is, is that actually this Fed has less power than it has for a Thank long you. time, simply Thank because you. the data is what the data is, and they have to respond accordingly. And the market is trading off the data. It's not necessarily trading off the rhetoric that we're hearing from the Federal Reserve. So Matt, when you take a look at what we're seeing, especially the upside revision to the core PCE, is there a sense that we could end the year with even a four handle on inflation or a five handle on the overall headline, something significantly above where people are projecting? Look, you don't have too much confidence in inflation. It's been very difficult to forecast. I think it's just unlikely given that what we know what's going to happen with rent and OER. Um, we know that in the back half of this year, those two really important co uh, components are going to be trending down. That said, you know we have, we have a three three core PC forecast for the end of the year. The Fed's forecast of three and a half, which was you know laughed at, I think a few months ago, looks a lot more plausible given the data that we're seeing. Uh, and you're in an environment where you don't want to discount upside risk to inflation, particularly if the labor market is not going to be loosening. Matt, communication from the Fed over the last ten years changed and we've talked about that they started to manage financial conditions in a much more direct transparent way but that's arguably because the nature of the economy changed over the last several decades and became much more financialized because of the financialization of the economy we also thought that when they started to raise interest rates to your point earlier on that it would hit the economy much faster the communications changed the nature of transmission has changed into financial markets everything tightens up i just think i have to sit here and sit here now and say there's so much we don't know because to your point, if you told me 12 months ago, told anyone, five-handle Fed funds, guess where unemployment is, they would not have said 3.4%. They wouldn't have said claims at 200,000. So do you think we need to be a little bit more, and not you, because we get along, this is not directed at you. Do you think we need to be a little bit more humble about what we don't know about what's happening with the Fed here? And do you think they need to be as well? Absolutely. I mean, we're in an environment of... Uh significant uncertainty about the outlook of a lot of data volatility, of mixed signals from the typically very reliable leading indicators that we would look at. 
you have an unprecedented environment and where you have households which are still sitting on a substantial amount of excess savings, where a labor market seems to be structurally undersupplied. You know, how all, all those things work out and, and how the lag structure of monetary policy to the economy works out is all key sources of uncertainty. I think for the Fed, my view is that it means they need to see evidence that things are moving in the right direction to be able to back off. We just don't have that evidence at the moment. Is there anything stimulative about being able to earn money from your cash? Look, the, if you looked at it just within that margin, I think you would say yes. Uh, the bigger picture is as the Fed tightens monetary policy, we've seen what happens to mortgage rates. We've seen what's happened to the housing market. We see you know, rising delinquencies on, on autos. So I don't think raising rates is stimulative. Uh, I think the, that component of it could be. But the bigger picture is, is certainly that it tightens uh, financial conditions. That's straight out of the school of Drew Mattis. <laughs> Did he message you? <laughs> no. Because that is exactly the kind of thing that Dream Mattis talks about. But you have to think if suddenly you can make 5% on your cash, I'm with then you. it's you know free money. You can play with it. You can do things, et cetera. And then is there something stimulative, especially if you're not seeing the weakness, if you've got locked in mortgage rates, if you've got a lot of these other costs that have already been immunized? I'm just wondering. I'm, I'm the reverse argument that. was an argument people made when we had negative interest rates. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. That it wasn't I'm, spurring economic activity. Maybe it was spurring some people to double down and try and save more. Exactly. So why couldn't you make the argument potentially that it could have the opposite effect. I don't know. It's I'd, just something to throw out there. Something to talk about, something to think about, because I just don't think we've got a clue. I think that um, that's correct. Any of this. I wonder if the Federal Reserve's even got the tools to bring inflation down towards target without right. just absolutely smashing this economy to pieces, which is what Mohammed's talking about. I think that a lot of people are wondering what it looks like when you cross the You valley. mentioned 3% inflation, Matt Lazzetti. Tomorrow, PCE deflator, top line 0. 0.4, 0. 0.1, 0.1, I do a quick three-month annualized to get a 2.40%. That's how you get – what's the value right now of a three-month annualized review by guys like you when you're wedded and the chairman's wedded to month, month, year over year? Is, is there value to looking at 90 days annualized? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, we know a lot of the year over year is being inflated by very strong prints that we had last year. You want to be looking exactly. at the shorter term trends to see, what, to, to see, to right. see what they're showing. <laughs> and that's where I really think the revisions were important. So at the February meeting, the Fed thought core CPI was 3.1% annualized. They found out it was actually 4.2, annualized, and you're getting a pickup in inflation on, on top of that. And so I think you've completely changed the trajectory of what it looked like at the end of last year. That's such a strong point, Matt. Thanks for that. Matt Lissetti at Deutsche Bank. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
man said to us a number of weeks ago, if you're not paying attention, if you're not confused, you're not paying attention. <clears throat> yeah. That was Julian Emmanuel of Evercorn. He joins us around the table. We're going to catch up with him in just a moment. Futures up by about a half of 1% on the S&P, Tom, coming off a four-day losing streak and trying to bounce. Exactly. Trying to bounce. NASDAQ 100 up nine-tenths of a percent trying to bounce. VIX comes in 23 to 21. Breaches 22, 21.86. But I think it's right. Trying is, is, is the right equity energy this morning. And keeping one eye on the bond market. Maybe two. Maybe two. All morning. Yields pushing higher again, Lisa. Approaching the highs of the year. And it's not just absolute nominal yields, but you're also looking at real yields, the 10-year real yield, uh, hitting the highest level uh, of the year, basically, going back to early January. At what point have we gotten the full reset in stocks that we're feeling in bonds? Have we priced in the full pace of rate hiking, even with some of the recent weakness? Let's whip through these markets. I don't want to leave you waiting, Julian. Just, you know, itching to speak to you. <laughs> we, we left that high. Futures look like this on the S&P 500, up a half of 1%. Yields coming up a couple of basis points, 393.91 on the US 10-year. And euro dollar, earlier this morning, if you just and again, Eurozone CPI. Lisa coming in at a record high on core. And revised upward after the German mystery figures that they got in. Here's what we're looking at today. 8.30 a.m. We get U.S. initial jobless claims plus the second read of the fourth quarter GDP in the United States. Initial jobless claims expected to come in still near historic lows. Again, where is that <clears throat> loosening in the labor market that a lot of people are asking for? It has not shown up yet. At 12 p.m. we hear from U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. She's talking about chips. She's talking about developing more technology in the United States. I want to hear what she says about China. Will that be in the speech or will that be the subtext that we hear basically under a lot of the innuendo that she discusses? And today we hear some more Fed speak because we, you know, it's another day that's not a quiet period. Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic is speaking at 10.50 a.m. San Francisco Fed's Mary Daly at 2 p.m. Is Fed speak taking on less importance, John, at a time when the data is so confusing and it all is about the data, not about the nuances of which member and what voting pattern? Without a doubt, it's the data that closed the gap between the Fed's projections and where the market was at the start of the year. They can talk about not cutting all they like. Ultimately, investors kind of understand, I say kind of understand the reaction function of the Fed and have responded to that economic data, payrolls, retail sales, CPI, PPI, take your pick and push the terminal rate higher. Well, and the reaction function, let's be clear, has kind of shifted a little bit over time. So there's this issue of, okay, inflation's number one, but people are basically believing that the Fed will be more hawkish if the data is more aggressive, and they won't be if it won't, period. What happened to the disinflationary process starting? I didn't see it anywhere in the minutes. Maybe it's already ended. It's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Usually the chairman's meant to reflect the consensus, whatever that might be, on the committee and the news conference, and then if he does an interview somewhere or testifies, he can talk about his own thoughts on, on matters. That performance in the news conference sounds even stranger now, going over those minutes from yesterday. I would agree. At the same time, I wonder how much the disinflation was his. I hear Gillian Emmanuel laughing, but you're, you're raising a great point. Was that the massaging, to take out all the disinflationary Maybe. talk? Or was that a Joe Powell issue and not necessarily a committee issue? Okay. Julian's with us. said that four times. So hello, Julian. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> well, we should just start with you straight away. Do that more often. You've got a line here in your research that says the path to our year-end 41.50 price target is lower than higher. Why is it lower than higher? 
So if you think about coming into the beginning of the year, there were three reasons the market had done as well as it had done until a week and a half ago. Uh, number one, the positioning was incredibly bearish. We all knew that. There was epic tax loss selling, which is why the stocks that were the biggest sellers, the ones that, that really had the weakest performance, are all the ones that rebounded. That's been neutralized. The second thing, is, as you alluded to a moment ago, is inflation. The benefits of the decline in inflation, we're now at the bumpy path, and the question is, are we plateauing? We don't think we are, but the market has discounted the benefits of the initial fall in inflation. And then, of course, the third element here is, is this whole idea that the combination of the inflation reaction and the price action in the equity markets themselves have caused people to believe that the soft lending is now the base case. So back at the end of the year, December, remember, the market was falling apart. Everyone was kind of pessimistic. 80% uh, chance of a recession in the next year. We think that number's around 30. You look at New York Fed measures, that number's closer to 57. So that to us is over discounted, whether it happens or not, it's over discounted. And this is a probabilistic world. So we do think that the path has shifted to potentially lower before we start now, moving. Benjamin Navarro at Citigroup talks about United Kingdom disinflation like Ed Hyman of Evercore ISI talks about US disinflation. What do stocks do? if we get Ed Hyman's sub 3% disinflation? So in the long run, that's going to be extremely beneficial. But I think, again, part of this environment is parsing between the short run, the medium term, and the long term, with the short term having been this incredible rip in the stocks that were most sold over the last several weeks. We would say in the medium term that a <coughs> consequence of inflation starting towards that path is going to be the growth slowdown that frankly, uh, you know, the Fed wants because that's how the labor market cools off. Uh, and then ultimately, when we get to that point, that's when the benefits of inflation kick in, uh, lower inflation, but that is off in the, into the future at this well, point. Let's translate this into a stock market call. Given the fact that at the end of last year, a lot of the pessimism came from this expectation of margin compression, we've gotten earnings, massive margin compression. Why has that not been priced in more significantly? Again, and, and uh, this is something that we all talked about very frequently last year. The price action sets the narrative. So you had two consecutive quarters of, of EPS reductions, and the stock market rallied in the face of that. And so given the positioning and the price action, there is a tolerance for it. But from our point of view, this whole idea of multiple expansion happening before the economic downturn, however shallow, and we do expect a shallow downturn, doesn't really add up. We'd rather see that multiple expansion coming out of the short and shallow recession that Ed Hyman is forecasting. A number of years ago, Julian and I went for lunch. I believe it was Greek. Greek food, it was very good. And he said to me, he said, John, you need to be watching what's happening with volatility. And then we had Volmageddon oh, yeah. in early 2018. <laughs> and again now. And now this conversation of Volmageddon 2.0. Bank of America say that this warning of Volmageddon 2.0, which was presented, by Marco Kalanovic of JP Morgan recently. B of A sets overblown. Can you talk to us about what that so-called Volmageddon 2.0 might look like and whether that warning is overblown? Overblown to the third power, <laughs> in, in our opinion. Okay, here's the setup, right? 
What zero days to expiration options do is actually increase volatility intraday. But if you look at the last several weeks, it's decreased it uh, in, intraday, right? So, so basically, you have zigs and zags from 9.30 till 4 o'clock that at the end of the day, because the options expire, it's all neutralized. And that is, is a recipe for books staying balanced, no forced selling, no forced volatility squeezes. It's not going to happen. You could lecture on that at San Diego. I mean, they're the land of this statistic. That was brilliant. Intraday, you know, I, it drives me nuts how people conflate intraday vol with intraday vol. Let's take it out longer. When will you know that Ed Hyman's right about disinflation? You read his report just like we do. He said he planted you at his office like back. You're so far back in the cheap seats. You're looking at, you know, Brooklyn and Queens. But but when, when you finally get to read Ed's report, how do you distill the when of it? When do we get that disinflation? Well, we actually think it is still part of the subtext right now. So, the, I agree. I'm just asking. Our, our proprietary surveys are showing that actually some of the shelter costs are continuing to subside, contrary to what we saw last week uh, from the Fed's, you know, the, the shelter component yeah, in just CPI. We're yeah. seeing wages really start to moderate. They're still elevated. Uh, but all of this really, in our view, and, and the goods part, we all know that that's an open, that's, that's well known. So frankly, I think it's some of the more, uh, you know, the monthly data is got another month or two of choppiness, and then I think you're going to continue to subside, perhaps more gently than you have. John, the, the pros on this, and this, I learned it from Ed Hyman. He was at a firm called, C you weren't there, you weren't at C.J. Lawrence, were you? Hyman was at C.J. Lawrence, and he's screaming about three-month annualized. We look at month over month, and granted, that's sure. important now, or year over year, and there's different ways Britain calculates it different than we do. Adults look at the three months of data and then annualize it out. And those numbers on inflation now are not in the perception of the market. They're low numbers. Well, they looked better a couple of months ago than they do now. Well, yeah, I, mean, I just I, I just looked at the 30-year mortgage rate, and you know, I, I just I was going to buy, and I can't. Uh, Julian, how busy is the office at the moment? Are people coming in? We want to know. Yeah, there's is it getting better. busier? Is it a three-day week, a four-day week? What it, is it? It, it has been consistently a four-day week. Um, and I think there's a little bit more crossover there. Uh, but, but the really good thing is, is that the client engagement is better. I've got a full travel schedule in March, and I, I think that's a very so you encouraging. So tra you're traveling below 59th Street? <laughs> yeah. Below and above. Oh, very are you good. And on planes. Are you finding that you're more productive post-pandemic? Are you seeing more clients than you did pre-pandemic just by not being in the office so much? How's it working out? Well, well, Zoom is is a remarkable thing. It, you know, it's it's it. You can go back to back to back to back. Uh, but uh, again, maybe it's old school, whatever. There's no substitute okay. for in-person. Hold on a second. John, you're just steadily arguing for a four-day work week. No, no, you not. find that you're what more you, productive. What are you suggesting? You're basically saying, you know, that people, you know, should be allowed to have either how a four-day week with you say. 100 <laughs> percent that's what was how, going on. How dare like, you? Don't you think that you're more productive in general? How dare you? <laughs> Maybe I am. Gillian, thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, buddy, as always. Gillian Emanuel of Evercore. 
on the shortlist for Vice Chairman Laura Raim joins us right now, Chief U.S. Economist, FS Investments as well. Laura, I, I want to go to a great phrase you've got on savings, momentum, and income. You have said it's going to be difficult to get the recession. Matt Lozzetti joins us later, who has called for a longer, farther out point of recession. And all of that, to me, hinges on what John Farrell just mentioned, which is housing. Does housing put us into recession? This is actually a very unique business cycle, and I am happy that we're talking about housing because it's just one example of how no business cycle ever truly repeats itself. I think something when we look at the impact of higher rates, housing is clearly ground zero in terms of activity. But when you look at GDP, when you look at the things that the Fed is really monitoring when they think about recession, employment's one of them. And we often think that when housing falls like this, you would see a lot of layoffs in the construction sector. And we haven't seen that, really. So it's just one small example of how the dynamics this time around are really different. The labor scarcity that you're experiencing in construction Mm -hmm. remains. A lot of these projects have long legs. And maybe they were put off a couple of years ago because they couldn't even find the uh, products to actually build these homes. That's a little bit of a cul-de-sac, Tom, but it's just a a way to say that... You know, in every recession, we go into it thinking, you know, looking at our past prior business cycles, pulling out the playbook, and you just really have to rethink it every time. And that's why, you know, we have to think about what the Fed is trying to accomplish. That is to slow the economy down and our economy naturally wants to grow. It needs to kind of break something to get it off those growth rails. And we still haven't done that yet, even with Mm -hmm. such a big hit to housing that I think we all feel. Well, the famous ROM GDP Now Index, everybody looks at that. Where's the momentum right now, Laura? I mean, are we we going to do a Q4 equivalency forward in Q1, Q2, Q3? I still it's still it's still based in consumption, an unemployment rate at three point four percent. We're going to get the personal income and spending data you know, later in the week. But the income data are just not going to really decide uh, or they're not going to fall until we get some meaningful change in employment. And with a three point four percent unemployment rate, you just don't get a recession. They need to move the needle on employment as part of their inflation wage um, goals and getting those back to 2%. But for now, I think you're just continuing to see that momentum coming from from the household, from household spending, which is much more income-based than wealth-driven. Laura, how much do you have faith in the long and variable lags to think that perhaps we just haven't seen the effect of the rate hikes and that if the Fed doesn't hike rates further, leaves them where they are, it'll be enough to bring down inflation? Well, this is one of the paradoxes. You fixed the mortgage market, which was the problem of the last business cycle. And now you've kind of taken that piece away from monetary policy with homes and mortgage prices, mortgage payments locked in. You're just not going to see monetary policy have the immediate impact on spending like you did during the 2005 rate hike cycle. So, you know, I'm not saying that a recession is a foregone conclusion. I think the GDP outlook for 2023 remains stagnant, probably 0.7 for the entire year. The first half of that, probably 1.5% growth. But at the end of the day, you know, you're really seeing an economy that is 
grinding along and the Fed is going to continue to have to push against a lot of momentum that plays out over quarters. Well, this raises the specter of potentially much higher terminal rates than people expected, especially the lack of sensitivity in areas like housing. How much have you ratcheted up your expectation from perhaps not the Phillips curve kind of models that people are talking about with 8% types of terminal yields, but something above that 5.5% that the market's gaming out? I mean, Lisa, it happens so rarely that I'm right that I have to crow when I am. But I've been saying for a long time that I think they're going to have to go above 5%, as high as even 550. I think, you know, that has been something that I has been clear because, you know, while they absolutely need to slow the pace of rate hikes, they were basically raising rates with their eyes shut last year. Um, at, you know, they need to now be a little more thoughtful, be more methodical. But we just, the economy had so much momentum going into it. And, and I think, you know, also fighting against these market expectations of rate cuts, which yeah. I think they've very effectively done. And the markets have, I think, had to come to terms with the Fed's, um, I think, really prof- this time around, strong sentiment that they are going to need to stay higher for longer. I think the data changed that conversation, not the Fed yes. speak, the data from the start of the year. We've been talking about residential real estate. Lara, can we talk about commercial real estate just briefly? We had this uh, headline, this story in the last 24 hours that an office landlord controlled by PIMCO has defaulted on about $1.7 billion of mortgage notes across seven buildings. Laura, what's going on there? I realist, Commercial real estate is also interest rate sensitive. So we're going to see some of these valuations be impacted. Remember, there are just so many fewer data points and the data is lagging in that sector more than it is for the residential sector. So I think we're going to start seeing headlines like this, but it is a sector where you're seeing such diffuse performance. We know that office space is going to be challenged, especially in the major metropolitan areas. But that's why, you know, I think for investors, we need to look in other areas. We need to look at, um, at, at industrial. We need to continue to look at um you know, the to some degree, even some belt states regionally, we need to look at multifamily. I think there are a lot of areas where we've continued to underbuild in this sector since the Great Recession. So there's still some there's still a lot of room for returns there. But at the end of the day, you just need to access that differently. It's not a sector that I think we're going to see as as uniform move in valuations as we have seen in residential real estate. Lara, this was great. Lara Rainer of FS Investments. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now is someone expert on the granularity of China away from the headlines. Leland Miller, to say he's chief executive officer of China Beige Book International, doesn't describe the ability. Leland, what is the symbolism you see if a year ago Mr. Putin's talking a football field away on a table to Mr. Lavrov versus what we observed, I believe it was yesterday, between Putin basically playing bridge with Mr. Wang of China? What is the symbolism of how close they were yesterday? yesterday talking to each other. Well, the imagery is perfect for this. I mean, you have uh, China uh, making no bones about being closer and closer to to Russia, particularly as Russia's uh, encountered way more problems than anyone expected at the beginning. So I think there's there's no question right now that that from a, uh, you know, China is all in on Russia's side from the perspective of their support. The question is, are they crossing red lines in the background? And that has become, it wasn't an issue the, you know, the first uh, first six months of the war. Now there are reports that they might be willing to cross lines Mm -hmm. In terms of providing goods to, to Russia, providing lethal arms, that that takes us in an entirely different direction. Is the backdrop here a recovery after pandemic for China? Evercore ISI suggests, as others do, we could see buoyant five, even dare I say, six percent GDP. Do you agree? Uh, I do agree. Look, there, there will be a cyclical bounce back in China starting in the second quarter. Uh, I think people have made too much of, 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 of baby indicators in January and February. Oh, or, you know, the story should be more bullish or less bullish. The recovery will start no earlier than March, you know, possibly April. And then you're going to see a real recovery because businesses will get back at it. You know, they told us last year they didn't want to invest. They didn't want to borrow. They didn't want to hire. Well, now they're going to do some of that. And there will be some measure of con- uh, revenge spending, revenge consumer spending as well. The question is when you get to the second half of the year, how much policy support the government wants to lay on top of what will already be an organic recovery. So you absolutely have the ability, you're bouncing off terrible numbers for 2022. The numbers will be good. There will be a recovery in China in 2023. The question is, is this more than two to four quarters? Uh, We don't think so. Leland, there's a lot of attention at the moment now on the auto market, given what's been happening with Tesla and other brands. Are you seeing the Chinese consumer turn more and more to domestic brands within China. Well, it's, it's sort of hard to read through the noise of COVID. I mean, in general, yes, I think that that's that's the inclination. But you know, you have a big problem where that where where you know the world wasn't exporting much during a time where China's exporters were running full throttle for the last three years. So as we get into the post-COVID era, we'll be able to to tell that more. But but certainly, when you look at cars and you look at some developments in in EV technology and battery technology, the Chinese are dominating. So there there will be an inclination to to, to buy home uh, on some of these things and and maybe maybe a lot of things. We've been trying to sort of decipher the change in Xi Jinping's tone over the past year. You talked about how the red lines, they didn't want to cross. They're now, they now seem more willing to cross. And what is the implication from the underlying economy? Is it youth unemployment going up? Is it this sense of frustration with the administration? Is there something going on that can give us a sense of why there's been this shift? 
there has been a shift, but I, I think it's a mistake to, to call it the game changer that a lot of people on Wall Street are saying. There was never a desire by Xi Jinping to run the property sector from its heights in the you know pre-COVID down to zero. There was always going to be a little bit of a roller coaster ride. And the way that we described this was they need to cull the herd and then ventilate. Cull the herd to take out weak firms, but ventilate before they take out the strong firms, before cash flow dries up, before contagion spreads. So you're in a ventilation part of the sector. If they think the risky companies are still doing risky things that need to be handled, then we're going to go back into that part of the cycle. So this is a this is a, a relatively gradual process to to minimize property as a growth driver. The fact that we're seeing you know a relaxation of the three lines that's happening right now, but that doesn't mean that Xi Jinping has suddenly decided his policy of the past three years is wrong. I don't think he has. Although going forward, do you think that this is a sign that perhaps the Chinese economy has insulated itself enough from the U.S., from other nations, that they can withstand sanctions or any consequences put on uh, the nation as a response to crossing other red lines, say, with Russia? Depends on the sanctions. So I would say that, you know, the sanctions that we were used to, you know, three, five, ten years ago, sure, they're baby sanctions, sanctions on individuals, sanctions, baby sanctions on banks. The kinds of sanctions we're looking at right now are big economic warfare tools. Foreign direct product rule can take out the Chinese tech sector, could take out major Chinese companies. This is the this is the the, the question about whether China will actually move move forward with with uh, with violating the big bank sanctions, giving giving Russia tools in Ukraine, giving Russia arms in Ukraine. If they do that, then President Biden's gonna have a, a very big mess on his hands because in order not to hollow out the credibility of these really powerful sanctions, which were intended for China in the first place, if you really look at it, then he has to fall through and crack down on companies that are violating. But that could cause a bigger brouhaha with China this year, which is something he's been trying to avoid. So if the Chinese are behaving badly right now, and we don't know yet, but there are leaks that they are, then then, then this could go in a very negative direction this year. And quickly. This is a very tense moment. Leland, thank you, sir. Leland Miller there of the China Facebook International. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.